So as we turn this corner and move into um, really the early church period following the apostles really is the way to, to look at it. Some people refer to this as the time of the early church fathers or the patristic period. There's various ways to sort of identify it historically. Um, we're really going to be looking, though, at this particular period from a number of different perspectives to kind of build uh, the period in, into our minds, not just from a, the standpoint of chronology where you, know, you take a particular period of time and you just unpack everything that you could possibly unpack within that period of time. We're going to kind of break it down by subject matter or by area of focus. And, and really, as I've said all along, my, my desire and, and my intent is to um, use this study of church history to really uh, draw us back to the timeless, eternal truth of God's Word and its implications on the lives of God's people for all time and all eternity. So the idea that I'm kind of holding before me as I study and try to think about um, this particular study and and its breakdown through various epochs of time, I'm constantly mindful of, and I'm trying to think through what are the implications of this for the believer today and that always draws me back to portions of Scripture or um, doctrinal positions in Scripture. And so, so that kind of compels me to, to approach this a little bit differently than just sort of a, a generic historical or chronological, I should say, chronological um, passageway through various periods of, of history, particularly history of the church. As, as a way of kind of introduction, I just want to kind of throw this thought out to you and maybe even get some of your ideas on this thought. I don't know if you've noticed, and I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek because I'm pretty sure you have noticed, um, but in many ways, um, the best way I know how to say this is that the world is kind of upside down, right? It's, 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 there, there are things that are upside down and inside out, and what I mean by that is that if you're looking at the world and you're looking at the events of the world and you're looking at the various morals and values and priorities and policies that affect a citizenry of a particular locale or country or region, all the things that kind of make up our existence and our experience of life in this world, um, it seems to me more and more, and even in, in more and more obvious and in my mind, fairly absurd ways, um, what is up is down and what is down is up. What, what seems to be obviously right is now viewed as obviously wrong. So it's no longer, there's no longer points of, of nuanced difference of view on a particular matter. It's now strident opposition to truth strident opposition to those who would hold to truth. And not just opposition to say, we vehemently disagree with you, but that your particular position on this matter is evil, is subversive, is repressive, is adversarial to the general flow of culture and progress and what we deem to be good and right for the world. We're living in a day and time where to just value traditional marriage as an example is not just a particular position on the matter. It is a position 
that is oppressive. It is stuck in some past bygone era. It is, it is uh, bigoted toward people and their, their rights to pursue the kind of uh, um, family structure that they, they deem appropriate for them. Do you see what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's just very different in, in our day and time. The fact of the matter is, is that you and I can just be going about our business trying to live our lives according to what's true and what we know to be true from God's Word. And that in and of itself, before you utter a word, can be a complete offense. And not just an offense, but something that is a threat to everyone else's way of life. Well, that, that is what was true at the time, at the close of, of Acts, and really into the first couple of centuries uh, of, of, the, of the New Testament church, where just for being Christian, that was a threat. That was something that was considered subversive. And it, and it, it brings to the forefront this reality that it's not so much what you say or how you express your views all the time on a particular matter, it's the fact that if your views, whether they're expressed or not, or whether they're expressed eloquently and graciously or not, if they represent something that's in opposition to the actual comprehensive worldview of, of, of the, the masses, then you become a potential threat by virtue of you just holding those views. Well, when you, when you look, turn the pages of Acts and you kind of close out that last chapter and we find the Apostle Paul in, under house arrest, um, we, we know that the story kind of continues on beyond that, of course. Uh, we talked about this uh, in our past time about how there's indications that the Apostle Paul actually uh, was released from this first house arrest situation there in Rome, had opportunity to travel a little bit more, possibly even went to Spain as far out as Spain uh, and did mission work there. There's other places that uh, the, the Gospels, I mean, excuse me, the, the New Testament letters refer to, uh, and the timing of those writings and those places and the reference points would indicate that he had opportunity to go to some other places after this house arrest that we find him in at the end of Acts. But nevertheless, this is the time of Nero at the close of Acts, and this is, this is what is believed to be the, the persecution that, that comes about that results in the martyrdom of both Peter and Paul, among others, um, to kind of close out that critical apostolic period where Peter represents the, the apostolic authority and ministry of the, the work of Christ from the standpoint of the apostles to the Jews, and the apostle Paul represents the same to the Gentiles. So you have, in this sort of close, proximate time period, during this reign of Nero, in the early part of AD 60 to the mid-AD 60s, where the Apostle Paul and Peter are both executed. They're both martyred in Rome. And this all takes place under Nero. So you have <clears throat> unfolding, we've talked about this, uh, where you have this theme of persecution emerging from the pages of Scripture and Acts as something that is part and parcel to what it means to be a faithful uh, believer in a pagan world, to be someone who is uh, serious about gospel witness in a lost and fallen world. You have this idea or this reality of resistance 
and ultimately possibly severe persecution that can ensue. And of course, from the Gospels and from Acts, you see this primarily being propagated by the Jewish leaders. Um, Obviously, in the Gospels, Christ's opponents were not Rome. Those were not his primary opponents. His primary opponents were the Jewish leaders. Well, that same idea continues on into Acts, as we've seen. And, And in most cases, the Roman Empire, the Roman state, the ruling imperial power of the time, the ruling governmental power of the time, during the, the period of the Gospels and Acts and those writings, what you see there is the Jewish leaders being the ones who are instigating this resistance, who are the primary points of resistance, and ultimately instigating elements of persecution and violence against Christ and his people and his, his disciples. And the Roman authorities were, were really tools that they used to carry out their, their ends. Of course, in Acts, we see a few occasions in which the Roman authorities get involved, but it's purely a civil matter. It's purely a matter of of maintaining peace. So a Roman proconsul might get involved in a matter involving these Christians, but it was more about this disturbance of the peace, and they would get involved to restore order. But you don't see this type of state-based Roman Empire-led persecution of Christians uh, for the sake of the fact that they are Christians until Nero. Here at the close of Acts, you see this. uh, The Apostle Paul appeals to go to Rome, and he's going to appeal to go and and, uh, uh, stand before Nero. Nero is the emperor at this particular point in time. We talked about this, I think, the last time we were together. Uh, the, the, what, what, what's going on, the, the, sort of the atmosphere of this period of time, particularly under the rule of Nero, is that um, in June, in the summer of June of AD 64 AD, as we've talked about, there was a massive fire that broke out in Rome. And it actually, it, the, the fires raged for near 10 days, uh, intensely for about a week and then sporadically for several days after that. But it was, it was widespread. Ten of the 14 provinces or sections of Rome were destroyed. So it was massive. I mean, massive in its impact. Um, and so, so this was obviously a, a huge uh, event in, for the Roman Empire, but also for the, the capital city of Rome. And even though Nero was not in Rome at the time, he was at one of his palaces in a, in a town uh, relatively nearby, Suspicion uh, came to the fore that, that Nero had some hand in, in starting these fires. In other words, he hired people to, to sort of start these fires, primarily because he wanted to rebuild um, the city to his own liking. He had designs to completely reconstruct the city, but there was nowhere for him to build. So in, in an element of madness, really, um, that he was rumored to have had some hand in, having, in starting these fires. And of course... The, the, the degree of, of devastation and the disposition of people from their homes and the and destructions of people's livelihoods and their businesses, I mean, it was, it's not a popular thing if you are being uh, assumed to have started this fire as the leader, right? It's, it's not going to uh, bode well for you. Well, um, he quickly uh, recognized this, and he, he began to search for a suitable scapegoat. Who could he blame for these fires, and as it happens, two of the 
ten sections in Rome that were not destroyed happened to be sections in which a good number of Jews and Christians lived. So he found in the Christian people this new sect of Judaism a suitable scapegoat, suitable scapegoat, someone to blame for the starting of the fires. And this really led to what you see fleshed out in this, this period of persecution really is reflective of the demonic madness of a man, is what you see. You see this, this persecution that unfolds, and even, even historians recognize this. Um, listen to what Tacitus, Tacitus was a, a historian, he was a senator during this period of time, but he was also a historian, and he wrote about this, this matter at, at pretty, pretty good length. Listen to how he records what's going on at this particular time where Nero selects the Christians to be the scapegoat for the, and, and the blame for the fires in Rome. Tacitus says, In spite of every human effort, of the emperor's largesse and of the sacrifices made to the gods, nothing sufficed to allay suspicion nor destroy the opinion that the fire had been ordered. So he went to great lengths initially to try to allay the suspicion he, he, he put people up into government uh, buildings. He, he brought to bear food and, and tried to restore a sense of trust in him as a leader, but none of that worked, and Tacitus is recording that here. He says, therefore, in order to destroy this rumor, Nero blamed the Christians. And this is really interesting. You need to think of this. This is coming from a pagan historian of this time period. Okay. In order to destroy this rumor, Nero blamed the Christians who were or who are, he says, hated for their abominations. Okay, so, the, so he's, he's acknowledging that these, this is a despised group. I mean, I'm with you. That this, this, this group is hated for their, what he calls, abominations. But listen to, what, listen to how he describes Nero's persecution of them. He says the, they, were, they are hated for their abominations, and he punished them with refined cruelty. Refined cruelty was the way that Tacitus described it. Christ, he says, from whom they take their name, was executed by Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius. Stopped for a moment, this evil superstition reappeared. So Tacitus is no fan of Christianity in the writing of this. He says it was stopped for a moment, obviously, when Christ was crucified. And, of course, there was a moment where things kind of you know, went silent until... Uh, the resurrection and the ultimate ascension, and then we saw this in Acts chapter 1 where they're sent out, and the next thing you know, the church begins to explode. But it says, This evil superstition, re- superstition reappeared, not only in Judea, where was the root of the evil, but also in Rome, where all things sordid and abominable from every corner of the world come together. So it's, so it's quite interesting to hear from the standpoint of a first century Roman historian him basically recording what Luke records as the gospel spread from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. He goes on to say that um, thus the, the first those who confessed that they were Christians were arrested and on the basis of their testimony a great number were condemned. Although, now listen to what he says. This is Tacitus' commentary on, on this period. He said, although not so much for the fire itself, as for their hatred of humankind. So in this little historical record of Tacitus, 
He's basically describing a few things that are, I think, of, of import here. First, he's describing what was the common Roman opinion of Christians of that day. They were hated for their abominations, and they had a hatred of humankind. So just hold on to those two ideas, okay? We're going to come back to that. But that was, in summary fashion, how Christians were viewed by the Roman Empire at that particular time. They were viewed for, a, that they were, they had, they were performed abominations. Now understand, this is coming from the place of a society and a culture that was, that was wrought through with idolatry and sensuality as a means for worshiping the gods. All manner of debauched kinds of activity and excess were a part of the culture, were embedded in the culture. And yet, the Christians are the ones who are viewed as uh, being hated for their abominations, and they are viewed as those who hate mankind. But nevertheless, he, he identifies the nature of Nero's persecution as he's punishing them with a refined cruelty. Now, Tacitus obviously believed that they hated humankind primarily because he loved Roman culture and society. He was a a, a believer in and a supporter of his own culture and society. And if that culture and that society and, and the active civil and community participation in it is identified and marked in extensive fashion by idol worship at temples, by transactions that, that are of a, a vile kind of nature, of sensuality and sexuality of a kind that is uh, worthy of the judgment of God that the Apostle Paul speaks of. You see Christians being saved out of paganism and gradually retracting themselves from participation in that kind of activity. And so therefore, because of that type of change in lifestyle, they are viewed as hating humankind. That's what I mean by what is up is down and what is down is up. He goes on to describe this, this period of persecution like this. He said, before killing the Christians, Nero used them to amuse the people. Some were dressed in furs to be killed by dogs. Others were crucified Still others were set on fire early in the night so that they might illuminate it. Nero opened his own gardens for these shows, and in the circus he himself became a spectacle, for he mingled with the people dressed as a charioteer, or he rode around in his chariot. All of this aroused the mercy. Now, there's a change in perspective on this as it went on. All of this aroused the mercy of the people, even against these culprits who deserved an exemplary punishment, for it was clear that they were not being destroyed for the common good, but rather to satisfy the cruelty of one person. So this, this, the nature of his cruelty against Christians was of such a nature that even among the sensibilities of these people, they became sympathetic to what they were suffering. And the tide eventually turned against him in this regard because people could begin to see that this was not about This had nothing to do with Rome. It had nothing to do with justice for Roman citizens. 
This was just a unique kind of severity and, and crazed enjoyment of others' wretched suffering that was motivating this kind of activity. Nevertheless, it really sort of, in a, in a way, defined the experience and the fear and the, and the, and the suspicion that Christians lived under in Rome for some period of time. And, and you, you may know, you may recall, that there was a lot of Christians in Rome at this particular point in time, and a growing number of Christians in Rome at this point in time. So this was no small affair at all. And this is the center of basically the known world. This is the, this is the hub of known civilization at that time. This is the power center. This is the capital. So this was a significant period and experience of the Christians very early on in the history of the New Testament church. <clears throat> Even though um, these were severe persecutions, it's likely that it was really confined to the city of Rome, and yet it had great impact, and word of it spread significantly. Now, Nero was eventually, in AD 68, he was deposed by a rebellion. He had lost support. He was Finally, I mean, his madness, his, his crazed lunacy, his, his antics, his mismanagement of the empire, all these things became quite apparent and quite obvious. And so he was eventually deposed, <clears throat> ended up killing himself. For a time, the persecution ceased. There is apparently no formal edict, no formal law that was written that would sort of mandate uh, the persecution of Christians at this point to perpetuate it in some way as a, as a legal matter. And of course, uh, this, this, this period of time that followed, for about a year, uh, there was a lot of turmoil in, in the Roman Empire. Um, it's known as the year of four emperors, so there was a lot of uh, vying for the throne, if you will. But eventually, in AD 69, um, Vespasian took over. He emerged as the emperor in that time period. And so Vespasian and his son, who, who succeeded him, this is this, the, the, the combined period for their rule was AD 69 to AD 81. And that was a time of relative peace. They weren't paying much attention to the Christians at all during this period of time. Now, this is also the period of time, however, where the, the Jewish people, particularly in Jerusalem, were resisting Rome and actually set to arms against Rome and entered this four-year period where they were under siege, basically. And we, as we know, in AD 70, Jerusalem was sacked, the temple was destroyed, and that basically marked the demise of the first church there in Jerusalem that started at Pentecost. So you have that taking place under the, the rule and reign of of Vespasian, and really uh, that, was, that campaign was led by his son Titus. And of course Titus succeeded him. So this is a period of time where there, was, there were basically uh, some distraction away from particularly persecuting Christians because they were conquering Jerusalem. And it, was, it did have a, a, an effect on the Christians in Jerusalem, obviously. <clears throat> but it was oriented toward a uh, revolt that the, that the Jews had, um, an uprising that the Jews had stirred up against uh, Rome. So it was really, it was really a, a, a national battle, if you will, more than a, a battle against uh, those of a particular faith. Well, that period of time, so that period of time, there was a bit of a relief, if you want to call it that, but uh, Titus was followed by Domitian, 
in AD 81 through AD 96. And during his reign, it's not 100% clear what was the primary impetus for his directed persecution against Christians during his reign. But what is known is that Domitian really loved the, the, the had, a, had a great love and respect for the traditions of Rome. Sort of the ancient traditions, uh, cultural traditions, religious traditions of Rome. And because the Christians were uh, anti-Roman idolatry, uh, and that was so much a part of their culture and their history and what he revered and wanted to sort of restore in terms of its traditional practice, it's possible that, that they posed a threat to his satisfying his objectives and fulfilling his dream of restoring some of the traditions of Roman pantheon idol worship and all the practices and cultural and civil practices that sort of surrounded that. Um, so they rejected the Roman gods, and, and it's possible that that was sort of uh, an impetus for, for Domitian's uh, persecution. The other thing that, was, that played into this time period is because the temple had been destroyed and the Jews no longer had to pay you know, their, sort of their, their taxes, if you will, their temple taxes to Jerusalem, Domitian thought, well, that should now come to the coffers in Rome. I mean, it makes perfect sense if you're Domitian, right? And so uh, there were some many number of Jews who rejected that, and so Domitian had to move toward legal edict and, and, and accountability and, and punishment for that. It was also true during this time, and even before this time, where the distinction between Jewish and Christian was not clear in the mind of the Romans. They were just, like, the Christians were just sort of some new sect of, of the Jewish religion. That's all it was. And so they could easily get lumped together. And so during this period of time, anyone who was accused of or guilty of anything that they would call Jewish practices, which could in, in, encapsulate Christian faith and practice, uh, would be subject to um, Roman authority and potential prosecution and, and, and potential punishment of some kind. Now, it appears that this period of time, a lot of the persecution centered in Rome, but it also was focused in Asia Minor. And we know that John, the Apostle John, writes Revelation, and he addresses Revelation, which is describing persecution, it's describing end-time persecution, but it's also written to provide hope to believers who are under the fiery trial of persecution, and he addresses it to the seven churches in Asia Minor. In fact, in Romans chapter, excuse me, in Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 to 6, he speaks of Babylon the Great, and this is a, a reference, a symbolic reference to Rome, and this is how he describes uh, Babylon the Great, or Rome. He says, Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, <clears throat> with whom the kings of the earth had committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great. 
again, a reference to Rome, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So the Apostle John is writing to the churches of Asia Minor because during this period of time, Domitian's persecution seemed to be very focused intently on both Rome and on that region of Asia Minor. Much like Nero, though, Domitian became uh, scrutinized and became viewed as really a tyrant and as one who was seeking vainglory and power, was hungry for power, lusted after power, even so far as to, like many of, many of the men in, in his position, um, wanted to be viewed as a, a sort of deity. And, and that, that became sort of an element of madness for him in, in terms of how people perceived him. And ultimately, his enemies conspired against him, and he was murdered in his palace. So that sort of led to a lull of persecution at his demise. But before we turn, I'm gonna, we're going to turn next, next time to the next period of time where you have uh, some of these uh, writers begin to emerge, some of these leaders that begin to emerge and begin to write um, and really give us insight into the development of leadership in the church and the development or the solidification of, of New Testament Christian doctrine, um, to carrying forward the ministry and work of the apostles. Uh, we're going to look at them. But before we do, I want to I ask you to turn to Ephesians for a second. Turn to, turn to Ephesians. We're going to just do a quick look at Ephesians and kind of set what we're talking about in a a biblical context, if you will. Now, just to remind us, Ephesians was written while the Apostle Paul was under house arrest in Rome. So this is is written right there at the end of of Acts, during that time period, shortly before this initial era of state-based persecution. Obviously, we have religious-based, the Jewish persecution that was taking place, that took place in various forms and cities and whatnot that we saw all throughout Acts, but state-initiated, state-mandated, state-supported persecution of Christians really began in earnest with Nero. And this is the Apostle Paul writing shortly before this period of time. And what I want to point our attention to as we look at this is to recognize, and we're not going to go through this in, in great detail, but just to kind of help us think about this from the standpoint of our own lives and, and the way that we view what we might experience as believers in our day and time. The Apostle Paul is writing to Christians who quite certainly will be facing persecution of a severe kind and even of a state-instituted kind where the governing authorities where you live and, and have business and have your families are set against you because of what you believe about who God is, what salvation is. I mean, your fundamental core beliefs about life, about creation, about who you are, about who they are, about who... I mean, it, it goes at the very core of your existence, right? And you have the state now who's coming against that. So he's writing to these people, and you, you know how Ephesians is structured, where you have... The first three chapters are dealing with the transcendent realities of what God has done in and through Christ, what God had planned before time began, 
who you are in Christ, what this means for you as a believer. And then he turns the corner, if you look at Acts chapter 3, and he begins to talk, excuse me, Acts chapter 4, and he begins to talk about what you should do about it. What does this mean for you? That who you are is something that God had done before time began. Predestined you before time began. Called you, chose you. You are his workmanship. You're created in Christ Jesus for good works that God created before him, that you should walk in them. That you are part of this mystery, the church, that was not revealed but now has been revealed. That there was, you were at one point separated from from God and from His Word, now you have been made a part of God and His Word and His people. The mystery of the presence of the Holy Spirit and all of these things that are ours in Christ. And then he says in Ephesians chapter 4, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Then you turn to... Ephesians chapter 5, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And then he starts speaking to them about their own conduct, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then he says, if you turn to the next chapter... No, I'm sorry. Down further in verse 15 of chapter 5, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time. Why? Because the days are evil. So he's, he's, he's encouraging them and challenging them and commanding them to walk in a certain way because, one, of the calling with which you've been called, and two, because the days are evil. That you have been called to something that is transcendent, that is timeless, that is eternal. It's bigger than you. It's beyond you. It's not about you. It's about the work and wisdom and purpose and plan of God that he has swept you up into. But you are to walk in such a way that that reality is reflected in the way that you live your life. In wisdom, as light in darkness, because the days, in fact, are evil. Now, he's writing to these Christians, and he's calling upon them to live their lives in such a way. In fact, he goes on in, in the, in the, toward the end of chapter 5 and on into chapter 6, talking to them about, about household codes, husbands and wives, slaves and masters, bondservants and masters, parents and children, these, these relationships that are part of the normal course of everyday life in that day and time. But he turns them on their head a bit from a cultural standpoint because in this household code, it would be normal and common for the one who has rightful authority to have the freedom to lord it over those to whom he has that authority. So in the case of husbands, you would have the right 
to lord your authority over your wife. Not so if you are in Christ. Because husbands are to love their wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That was a revolutionary way of thinking for him to throw that down in this particular culture. He goes on to tell children, Obey your parents in the Lord, this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment of the promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, this is revolutionary for him to say this. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. What? I'm, I'm the boss here. I can do whatever I want. That was the code. No, the Apostle Paul says, you are called to something transcendent. So here's what you're supposed to do. You're not, or you're not, not supposed to do. Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Then he goes into bondservants and masters. He says, bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart. Then he goes on and says, um, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. What? Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. This is unheard of for that kind of instruction to be thrown down in these household codes because those who had rightful authority had the right to exercise that authority in the manner which they saw fit. And most of the time, it was a domineering kind of authority. It was ultimate kind of authority. So for the Apostle Paul to come along and say, Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, sacrificed himself for her. That's how you're supposed to love your wife. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. Masters, treat your slaves well. Stop threatening them. That's revolutionary instruction. Now here's what I want you to understand. It's this that became the cause of the impetus for Christians to be persecuted. Okay? We don't need to be thinking in terms of they were, they were starting this violent insurrection of the Roman government. That's what the Jews did. And they were just smashed through military means, just like any other nation rising against a nation. But Christian persecution that, we, that, that begins to develop, and we're going to look at it in more detail, especially when you get into the second century, and you, you see hints of it when, in Tacitus' writing, as I pointed out, they are persecuted for living out what the Apostle Paul is writing in Ephesians. Abstaining from sexual immorality. Abstaining from idolatry. Uh, abiding by... Think of this. Think of the household codes for a moment. Think of the slave who now has a Christian master who is now intent on living out their Christian faith, this transcendent calling that the Apostle Paul talks about in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. They're intent on living this out, and they begin to live out their mastery in this kind of way. And now you have this bond servant who's thinking, this, this guy is a, this is a new guy. He's unlike any other master that I know of anywhere around us in our community. This is, I've never seen anything like this. Can you imagine the kinds of conversations he might have with other bond slaves? What is that going to do to other masters who are not believers? What is that kind of kindness and graciousness, and Christ-likeness demonstrated on the part of a master to a slave, 
going to incite amongst other masters who are not so inclined. That's a threat to them. You see that? Just by virtue of that master fulfilling this newly informed, Christ-informed household code, that becomes revolutionary in nature to those who want to hold on to the status quo of authoritarian rule. I will rule this slave as I please. I will rule my wife as I please. That is, that is unsettling and unnerving to those who want to maintain their, 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 their power and their authority. So here's what I want us to kind of take away from this and, and think about as we go into our next study. Sometimes I think it's easy for us to envision an environment or a climate of persecution that is characterized largely by some type of um, overt, anti-God, anti-Christian political system. Or, by virtue of, of Christians living in some country or some region of the world that is a theocratic uh, form of government, a theocratic culture of a different type, for example, like Islam. And so, that, and so that's, where, that's where Christians are really persecuted. What I'm saying is that persecution can become a consequence of believers just living out the principles, the transcendent truths, and the guidance that the Apostle Paul gives us in Ephesians whether it's in your home, with your husbands and wives, with your kids, as an employer, as an employee, just just living that out can become a source of contention and threat in the right environment. And that's, that's what ends up happening. Just like Tacitus said, they're abominations and that they hated humankind. That's how they were characterized for just living this kind of life, this kind of way. But he tells them, Be careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. Why? The days are evil. Do not be deceived. The days are evil. And, of course, Peter provides greater instruction, more explicit instruction to endure persecution and suffering. So, as we think about this, I just want to encourage us to be mindful of the fact that our faithfulness, our just our basic, if you want to call it run-of-the-mill, Christian faithfulness could become cause for directed persecution at some point. It's not, it's not out of the realm of possibility, and it's certainly not out of the realm of historical fact. So we need to be wise, and we need to be ready, and we need to be grounded and rooted, and we need to recognize that our calling is eternal, transcendent. It's not temporal or momentary. It's not a calling that's based upon when it's expedient or convenient. It's based upon God's plan and purpose before time began. Any closing thoughts or comments before we pray and dismiss? All right, let's pray.